This morning we're going to continue in our series of Hebrews, and we find ourselves in chapter 8 now. I believe I can cover the 13 verses um, fairly well off, because some of these go together real quick. We can just say a few things and move on. So maybe we'll cover the whole chapter today. I'm trying to move just a little bit faster in Hebrews, not to bog us down for years to come. But this morning in this section, I am glad to be here. It's a very, very important section. Some Bible teachers believe that where we're at here in chapter 8 is really kind of the heart of the whole book. It's where he makes his grand point, and then when we get going into chapter 10, it gets into the more practical stuff. Like, now that you learned all this doctrine, here's what you should do with your life. So this morning we're in a very, very critical part of the book. I hope I can bring that out as best as I can. But the author of Hebrews in this letter, I believe personally, was a pastor. I've said that before. And I think he was writing to his church. He wanted to help them. He wanted to encourage them. Because these people, it's called Hebrews because, again, they were most likely, maybe not all of them, but a majority of the people in this church were probably ethnic Jews, real Jews who had converted to Christ. So it's called Hebrews because these were Hebrew people that had become Christians. Now, I share that for this reason. You have to try to imagine when you read this letter, why is he saying this stuff? And we have to guess a little, but one thing I want to point out just to keep our minds focused as we go through this letter. In their day, if you were in Israel, you were a Jew. You didn't have to be in Israel. You could be in the parts around Israel and you're a Jew. And you convert to Christ. I'm talking right in their day. And then you go tell your mom and your dad and your friends and your family. It is probably a 90% guarantee that you could lose your job you could lose your status in the family. They would have this phrase called you were kicked out of the synagogue. And what that meant was you were not able to participate in the life of Judaism anymore. You couldn't go to the synagogue events with your family when they had their Passover things and their holiday gatherings. You were disinvited. That was the best that would happen to you. The worst is you could face outright physical persecution. There's records in the Bible many times of people driven from their lands, from their homes. The point is simply these people, it costs them something to claim Christ. More than just, it's inconvenient that I have to do certain things. It really could cost them. And I think he was writing to them to try to get them to press on no matter what. Encourage them and say, look, you're facing pressure. I get it, but don't give up on Jesus. Don't quit. You cannot follow anyone greater than Christ, no matter what's going on in your life. So here, then, he's going to say to them, look, any person, anything doesn't compare to Christ. And he's done this throughout the letter. He said, here's Moses, he was cool, but Jesus is greater. Here's Aaron, he was cool, but Jesus was greater. Angels, they're pretty neat. Jesus was greater than the angels. And he keeps building this case for how greater Jesus is. Now, in this part where we're at, He's wanting to say one more thing about Jesus is our high priest, but the reason he's going to say it this time is to kind of sum it all up and say, here's why I shared with you all that stuff about high priest and Aaron and Melchizedek. It's because Jesus has a better ministry that he offers, and because of that, he brings a better covenant for God's people. Now, have you ever broken a promise before in your life? I think if we're all honest, we have at least once. I've broken a promise, you've probably broken a promise. Not only that, you can probably remember several times where someone made a promise to you and they broke it. And think about how that made you feel. Even even an insignificant promise, still you think, 
Well, why did they even tell me that to begin with? Why didn't they just keep their mouth shut and not promise it at all and just go about their business? It bothers us. It hurts. And if we're moral people, good Christian people, when we break a promise, we should feel guilty about that too. We should feel it. We should know it. Well, the title of the message is about promises, and I'm calling it Jesus Provides Better Promises for His People. And I want you to have that in our mind as we go. That's going to be the author's point here is here's Jesus, here's what he does, and what he really provides is better promises for people that are his brothers and sisters, those who are children of God. Jesus will never, ever, ever break his promises to you. Never will he do that. I may break mine, you will break yours. He will never break his. So then the question becomes for this morning, as we walk through this, I just want to share with you what are the promises he says Jesus gives his people that he'll never break. And how do they help us get going about in our lives? Before we get there, we need to look at a few things in the first part. And he's going to say something like, Jesus provides these better promises. We'll get to that toward the end. But the reason he can provide better promises is because he has a better ministry as a high priest. So with that in mind, I want to pick up here and start in verse 1. And if you join me in standing out of respect for God's word, I want to read chapter 8, verse 1, just a couple of verses And he begins by saying, now the point in what we are saying is this. We have such a high priest, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven, a minister of the holy places in the true tent that the Lord set up, not man. For every high priest is appointed to offer gifts and sacrifices. Thus it is necessary for this priest also to have something to offer. Now if he were on earth, he would not be a priest at all, since there are priests who offer gifts according to the law. They serve a copy and shadow of the heavenly things. For when Moses was about to erect the tent, he was instructed by God, saying, See that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown you on the mountain. And I'll read verse 6 and stop. But as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is as much more excellent than the old, as the covenant he mediates is better, since it is enacted on better promises. Let me pray for a moment. Father, thank you for these people that took their time to gather here. Thank you for Bruce and his team leading us through music and song and focusing our hearts on you and worshiping you and all the wonderful things you've done. Thank you for the people that shared a word about what they're just thankful for that you've done in their life and how you've walked them through things. Just the joy that we have of the salvation that you've given us. I ask, Lord, for the pastor friends I have on my mind, would you bless their churches this morning too? Bless them as they preach your word. The gospel's going out everywhere this morning, Lord. Would you let it not return void as you promised? And now, Holy Spirit, I ask that for this message, that you would speak to hearts here in a way that only you can, that you would move me out of the way, and it would just be you speaking to hearts here. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Thank you. You may be seated. So before we talk about the promises, we have to start with the first things that he talks about, the writer here, just following his flow. And he makes a case. He provides better promises because he provides a better covenant. He can provide a better covenant because he has a better ministry. So we'll work our way through that and hopefully it'll make sense in a minute. Let's look at the first thing. Jesus has a better ministry. It's the first point he wants us to see in this passage. What Jesus brings by being a high priest. He's not just Lord and Savior. He's a high priest. That's been his whole point in this letter up to this this point here. He brings a better covenant and that covenant has better promises between God and his people. Jesus does not just save people by his death and resurrection. He brings people to God and he brings God to people. 
That's how he functions as a priest. He's a bridge. He's a go-between between sinful people and holy God. He brings them together so they can have fellowship and relationship together. But how can he do this? Because he's saying here his ministry is perfect in what he does. It is far better than what the Old Testament priests could provide. Jesus represents a new covenant. That's going to be the point this morning. A new covenant with new promises. When I'm saying the word covenant, think of an agreement, a contract, so to speak. So he forgives his people that believe in him forever. No more animals to bring every day. No more of that stuff in the Old Testament. How? Again, we'll get to a little bit more of that, but he works through people's hearts and brings better promises as a better high priest. Now, the main point of this section this morning is that Jesus Christ brings in a new, better covenant, covenant based on better promises for God's people. That's what we want to work our way to this morning. Now, once again, though, he wants us to see for just a moment, though, this this whole thing that we've talked about for weeks about Jesus being a better high priest. So again here, he says, look, Jesus is our high priest. He's a better high priest. He has a better ministry, but that's important because it helps us out as his followers in a very, very big way. So how does Jesus have a better ministry? Like, what's he really getting at? Well, in the first instance here, he says in verse one, it's because Jesus sits at the right hand of the father's throne. So in verse 1, now the point in what we are saying is this. Again, he, he now admits here, after eight chapters, we finally get to where he says, here's my point. I mean, he's like a good Baptist preacher, right? He goes all the way through and then finally says, now let me make my point. And that's what he's doing here. All that stuff we talked about all those chapters ago, Melchizedek and on and on, all that detail, he says, let me kind of wrap it up for you. Here's what I was trying to get you to see. So the point of all of that is this, we have such a high priest, meaning Jesus, who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven. He says, we have something here. The the phrase we have, it's present tense. You have it every single day. What is it you have if you're a child of God? You have Jesus as your personal high priest. But here's the thing for this morning, he says, he is seated somewhere. He's positioned somewhere. Well, where is he? He is seated at the right hand, he calls it, of the majesty in heaven there's a throne and jesus is at the right hand the right part of this throne and he calls it the majesty that's in heaven we have a special high priest who is seated he's not doing something in this instance he's sitting down and where he's sitting down is greatly important he calls this word here the throne of the majesty the majesty in heaven now that word is interesting it means greatness It's like when you maybe have seen on TV a a queen or a king, and sometimes they'll just say, your majesty. That's what they're getting at. They're honoring and respecting their position, their authority, the majesty of their throne, their kingdom. And here he says, I'm calling someone with a throne the majesty. And Jesus is at the right hand of the majesty. Who's the majesty? Well, you may guess where this is going. He's talking about God the Father. In the Bible, this word majesty is only ever 100% used to reference God the Father. His greatness, his kingliness, how he reigns and rules over everything. And here he says, that is the right side of where Jesus Christ, your high priest, is seated to the right of the majesty, of the glory of the Father. He's at his right hand. That's the place of honor. Now, I want to draw your attention to, he's not standing there. He's sitting down. It says he's seated at the right hand of the majesty. When you sit down, it implies you're done with your work. 
At least it should. Maybe you're taking a break. But in biblical terms, when you see this imagery of someone is seated, it's usually referring to they were doing something, they set out to accomplish a task, and they finished it. They accomplished what they set out to do. Now they can sit down to signify it's done, it's over. So again, here he says Jesus is seated. I want to read to you Hebrews 10 verse 11, because here's why I think this is interesting. In Hebrews 10 11, he says, every priest stands daily. Now he's talking about the Old Testament priests, and he's comparing Jesus to them. He says, those guys, they stand daily to do what? They have to work every day. They offer their services between God and people. They offer sacrifices, it says, repeatedly offering the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. So the Old Testament priests have to stand to do their job. They do the same job every single day. They receive the animals after animals, sacrifice them, and over and over. And he says, because their work is never done, because it can't accomplish salvation. But when you look at Jesus, he says, what's he doing as high priest? He's sitting down. He is not standing up offering sacrifices for people every single day. Why not? He was the sacrifice, and he already offered himself once for all time. There's no need. So he can show as high priest, I've accomplished my work for my people. I can sit down next to the Father. I don't have more work to do on their behalf for their salvation. It's done. It's finished. You may remember the story of him on the cross. What did he say? It is finished. That's what I think he's getting at. His work is done in that regard. The Old Testament priests, again, they did not have that luxury. I want to read Hebrews 1.3, a couple of verses here as well. Why else might Jesus be sitting down at the right hand of the Father? In Hebrews 1.3, it says, He, that's Jesus, is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purifications of sins, so this is the point, after Jesus made purification for sins, after he offered up himself as a sacrifice, rose again, what did he do? He sat down at the right hand, and he says the phrase again, of the majesty on high. That means Jesus, what he came here to do, he did it. He did it completely. He accomplished his mission, and he sits down next to the Father, showing he did it. Psalm 110, verse 1, why else might Jesus be sitting? Psalm 110 says this, The Lord says to my Lord, Yahweh says to Adonai, that's the Father says to the Son, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Jesus is sitting there waiting for the Father to one day say, you're about to go do away with all this sin, all of Satan and his demons, all of this wretchedness, it will be cast away. And he's just there waiting for that moment when he can cast away all enemies, make them his footstool. Why else is Jesus sitting there? John 17, 5, the last one I'll read you here. Jesus says, Now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. That was spoken before Jesus went to the cross around his apostles. So what he was saying is, God, I'm about to go down this cross and rise again. Will you glorify me back to the position I had before I was born in that little manger? So he's back where he rightfully should be, is the point, at the right hand of the Father. This is why Jesus is said to be sitting. He's honored by the Father for his work because he accomplished salvation for all eternity for people that believe in him. What's he doing there? Well, he went there to send the Helper down, the Holy Spirit. He's waiting for the time when the Father says to the Son, now it's time to go, and you read the book of Revelation, and it's all of that stuff. He's waiting for that moment. So he's, he's seated really stood out to me, though, when I was studying this. Because, again, 
If he's sitting down, he's accomplished the work he set out to do as Savior. He'll return again, though, but for now he's seating at the right hand of the Father. Again, it's like maybe a kid or a teenager and you're trying to get them to you know, do a chore and a task and they sit down and you catch them and you're like, hey, why are you sitting down? You're, the job's not done. You've got to get back up and finish it. But that's not the position Jesus is in. He, he can rightfully sit down because he's done. He's finished the work he set out to do. The reason he came to be born of the Virgin Mary, he accomplished that. So my point is this, when this hit me looking at this, I thought, you know what? There's another thing here. Your life, my life, it could be stressful. It could be chaotic. You could have so many things going on that you feel like you can't see straight, you can't think straight. I, I don't know all your situations. But when I read this, it struck me. And I don't even know if the author meant this, but it just hit my heart the right way. To think about, no matter what is going on chaotically in your life, to read something like this and know that your Lord and Savior, Jesus, he's sitting down. Not because he's lazy, because he's got it under control. He's accomplished it. And he's sitting, presiding over your life and mine. If he is not in chaos, if he is not going crazy and confused, then you and I should just trust him. Because that's the position he's in. He's finished his work and he's sitting down next to the Father and he's not in chaos. He's just patiently waiting for his moment. He's enjoying the presence of the Father. I serve and you serve if he's your Savior. We serve a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. That's our high priest and he's seated next to the Father and that is a great comfort, at least to me, when my life might be in the pits to know he's in control. He's not going crazy. The next thing of why he has a better ministry, verse 2, because Jesus serves in the Father's tabernacle. So if you would look at verse 2 with me, and it reads, a minister, talking about Jesus, he's a minister in the holy places, in the true tent that the Lord set up, not man. So he calls Jesus a minister. The word minister simply means a special servant that renders special service. It usually does have a religious context. Someone who renders special service on behalf of God for people in a religious type setting. So Jesus is functioning as a servant here, a minister that does a duty on behalf of God for God's people. Well, he says he's a minister in the holy places. Now we're talking about the tabernacle and the temple and all those things from the Old Testament. He is serving in those holy places. But what's interesting here, he calls it the true tent. He serves in the true tent that the Lord set up, not man. Now, tent, he's just referring back to the Old Testament. If you read the book of Exodus, Moses uh, set up the tabernacle that was called the tent. That's where the holy stuff was, and the priests would go in there. He's saying in heaven, there is a tent, a tabernacle, and God set it up, not man. That is where Jesus is ministering as a priest. He is not on this earth at some temple or tabernacle doing that stuff. That would be pointless. He is up there by the throne of the Father doing that stuff. What's he doing? He's ministering the holy places in the true tent that the Lord set up, not man. He is serving in God's tabernacle that he set up. Jesus doesn't minister in an earthly bound tabernacle like Aaron did. He serves as priest in the true tabernacle in heaven, in glory, that God built himself. And the next thing he does as a better minister, it says he offers better gifts and sacrifices. So in verse 3 now, he says, For every high priest, meaning the earthly ones, they are appointed to offer gifts and sacrifices. So you may remember they had to receive the animals, they would offer them as sacrifices, they would receive the gift offerings. 
all of that stuff. But the point he makes here is it was necessary for this priest. Now, this priest is Jesus. If he's a priest, he also needed to bring something to offer as a sacrifice as well. But notice what he says. He says, for this priest also to have something to offer. Now, if he were on earth, he would not be a priest at all, since there are priests who offer gifts according to the law. He's being very wordy just to say this. Jesus Christ brings a sacrifice as a priest, not here, there in God's heavenly tabernacle. And what did he bring as a sacrifice? Himself, his own body. He offered it on the cross as a sacrifice for sins. And now that's his offering he brings as a priest on behalf of his people. He doesn't bring a goat or a cow or a lamb in heaven like you read in the Old Testament on earth. He doesn't do that. He brought himself. He offered himself up. So in that way, he says he serves as a greater priest, a greater minister, because he serves there in God's heavenly tabernacle, and he brings better sacrifices. And then here he says also in verse 5, he serves in the real tabernacle. They serve a copy, it says, and a shadow of the heavenly things. Now, the they is the Old Testament priest. So I know there's lots of they's in them. Just go with it. They, in the Old Testament, the earthly priests, serve a copy and a shadow, he says, of the heavenly things. And this is what I want us to try to get this morning. He says, on earth, when you read the Old Testament, God told Moses, set this stuff up and do that, and all the tents and the tabernacle and all that kind of stuff. You have that going on. Then you have the priest ministering in that, serving in that, bringing animals, doing all their stuff. So you have this earthly thing going on with tabernacles and tents and animals. But he says what was really happening was fascinating. They were ministering in just a shadow, a copy, he calls it, of the real thing in heaven. I mean, look again, they serve a copy and shadow of the heavenly things. For when Moses was about to erect the tent, he was instructed by God saying, see that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown you on the mountain. What's he getting at here again? The, the earthly guys, Moses and Aaron and them, they ministered in earthly tabernacles and things, and the author here just called those copies. Models is what the word could be translated. Models of an original, something else. The original something else is a real tabernacle in heaven that God himself built. Think of a model car you may have built model plane, ship, car, anything like that. That model you built is resembling the real thing. It's a smaller version. You built it, but it's meant to just be a picture, so to speak, of the real thing, the original thing. That is the same wording he's using here. There's a real tabernacle in heaven, and God showed Moses a small picture of what that looked like and then gave him instructions for how to construct that earthly tabernacle down here and said, here's what you do in it. And he says, all of that was preparation for when you get in heaven, there will be, I believe literally, there will be a heavenly tabernacle. And it will be glorious beyond anything we can imagine. And here he says, those guys were serving a picture and a copy of those things. That's where God gave him the plans because he had done it up there. So he gave him a small picture down here. Now, why are we talking about all this? Well, because Hebrews says that Jesus is our high priest. He serves, he ministers in the real heavenly tabernacle, not a model like Moses and them, a real one. And because of that, he provides a much better service for his people, a better ministry. I mean, just think about this logically. 
would you rather have the model or the real thing that you had the model of? I mean, maybe you would not have the original, but you would probably, I would assume, if you could have it for free, probably want the original thing, whether it was a car or whatever it was. You maybe say, I can't afford it or I can't fit it here or there, but I've got this model and it reminds me of it. My grandpa was this way. He would collect model cars and his cousin did this as a joke because he always wanted, I don't even remember the name of them. He wanted certain model cars that for his day were sports cars. And it's actually kind of sad, but, but they had a bad joke. His cousin made fun of him because he was poor. They were both poor. But he made fun of him and would get him the little model cars to show him, you'll never be able to own the real one, so I'll keep getting you the model cars. And my grandpa one day said, you know, hey, I'd love to have at least one of these. Now, I said all that just to say again, that is an idea here of what would you rather have? Would you rather just have Aaron and Moses' earthly stuff? which is just a model, or would you rather have Jesus serving on your behalf there in the real one? I'd rather have the real one. That's his point here. Jesus has a better ministry because he's there in the real tabernacle. Now, Jesus then provides better service, better covenant, and all these things, and we'll get to in just a moment better promises. The final thing I want to say, and we'll move on to the bigger stuff. He says, Jesus' ministry was more excellent than the Old Testament priest. If you look at verse 6, He says, but as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is as much more excellent than the old. I want to stop there. So just the first part of verse 6, he says rather quickly here, okay, all of that we just said, the point is Jesus has a better ministry, better than Aaron and Moses and those Old Testament guys because he's actually there in the real deal ministering there, not a copy. Now, therefore, Jesus can bring in something for you and I. Because of all of that, he can bring a better covenant. And because he can bring a better covenant, he can bring you better promises that he'll never break. Based on everything there. Look at verse 6 again. He says, But as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is as much more excellent than the old, as the covenant he mediates is better, since it is enacted on better promises. Now the word excellent means distinct, different due to better quality and value. So here's the real stuff I wanted to get to, and I'll try to be quick. All of that leads him to say this. Jesus then brings or mediates a better covenant. That'll be verses 6 through 13. So the second main point here, Jesus mediates a better covenant. Why does Jesus Christ have a better ministry than Aaron and Moses were saying? Why does he offer a better service as a priest for God's people than Aaron and them ever could? Because he can mediate or bring in or inaugurate, so to speak, a better covenant than what they could. Again, we're talking about the Old Testament law and that covenant. Jesus brings something better than that, and it does something better for God's people. Think about if you've read the Old Testament, Exodus, Leviticus, Deuteronomy, those things. That's what we're talking about. God brought Israel before Mount Sinai there and through Moses, the spokesperson, so to speak, gave the Ten Commandments you know, on the stone tablets and all that. The point really behind that, though, was God said to Israel, you're to be my people and I'll be your God. Love me, worship me, follow me, and I'll bless you so much that other nations come running to you, wanting to know who your God is because they just have to be blessed like you. All you got to do is obey. So he entered into this agreement, this arrangement, a covenant only with Israel. But that covenant was limited. It had weaknesses And he's about to show us here, Jesus comes on the scene and he brings a better one, a better covenant. His covenant has no weaknesses, no limits. 
it brings better promises for God's people that put their trust in him. Well, what makes Jesus' covenant so better? Again, I, I just said it, but in verse 6 he says, because he brings it with better promises. He brings a better covenant based on better promises. He says at the end of verse 6, since it is enacted on better promises. Now, a covenant, we've talked about this before, I'll be real quick. Covenant simply means a type of a formal agreement, like a contract. I say like, it's not quite like a contract today, but close. We have a contract here in our society. You, we enter into an agreement, you sign the paperwork, and the contract says what you need to do, and it says what I need to do. You have a lease on an apartment, you sign something saying, I'll agree to pay so much rent for so long, but the apartment people agreed to provide you know, maintenance and all this upkeep. There's an agreement. And if one of the two breaks it, you have legal means to sue or get an attorney and see whatever you need to do to show the other person, you, this is what it said, you broke it, so someone needs to pay here. Well, in their day, they didn't quite have it on paper, but it was similar. They entered into a formal agreement, two people, two parties, and one said, this is what I'll do for you, and this is what you'll do for me, and if either of us breaks our oath, our agreement, then you were sort of swearing your own blood on your head. You, you could die. Well, here he says, okay, Jesus brings a new covenant, a new pact, a new oath. Between who? Between God and his people. Better than the old. Better than the Old Testament. He mediates this covenant. Mediators a go-between. He acts as someone filling the gap between two parties that are not together. Between people and God. And here comes Jesus, and he is the mediator, bringing this covenant arbitrating between the two, bringing them back together into fellowship and relationship. And he says, now it's better, it's stronger, it's, it's mightier, it has no weaknesses, and it has better promises. So, let's look at this then. New covenant with better promises for God's people. Well, why was there a need for a second covenant at all? I, I find this interesting too. Look at verse 7. He says, let's step back for a second and ask ourselves, but why are there two covenants and not just one? Why wasn't the old covenant good enough? Why isn't what God did with Moses and Aaron good enough for today? Verse 7, he says, for, it, for if the first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no need or no occasion to look for a second. So the very fact that God sent Jesus to this earth to die and rise again and bring a new covenant, that fact logically proves the old one wasn't good enough. It was temporary. Jesus had to come for a reason. If the old one was good enough, meaning if Moses and Aaron and all the Old Testament stuff could save you for all eternity, there'd be no need for Christ. What he did was redundant, but that's not the case at all. He was necessary. And that's what he says here. The first wasn't good enough, so the second had to come through Christ. But my question still is this, when I was studying this, I like to ask lots of questions. Like, why though? Why did God do it this way? Why did God go through all that trouble? Why did he go through all that Old Testament stuff just to get to a point where he says, we're going to do away with that, and we're going to do a new thing through Jesus Christ. Why go through it at all? Why not just jump straight to Jesus and skip all that Old Testament stuff if it was temporarily anyways? Well, I don't know if I have the precise answer, but I have a thought, and I, I think it can help us here. I want to point out Jesus did not waste his life. He had to come for a reason. So that first Old Testament covenant was not the point of salvation. Everything you read in Genesis and Exodus, Viticus, it was not the way people were ultimately saved for all eternity. They were still saved by faith, but that covenant had a different purpose. It wasn't to save people. 
That's why Jesus came. So I want to make something else clear. It says in verse 7, the first covenant was, it had fault. But that doesn't mean God made a mistake. That's the other thing I thought. Like, we know God doesn't make mistakes, so is he saying that God made a mistake with the first covenant? And then God got in the middle of it for a thousand years and said, well, wait a minute, this one has some gaps. I need to redo this thing. So I'll send my son and we'll do. No, that's not it at all. Jesus is not plan B. He was the plan all along. The old covenant had a place, but it wasn't the point. It wasn't the end all. Think of the old covenant in the Old Testament as phase one of God's bigger plan. It was phase one to get to phase two, which is Jesus Christ. But again, why did God set that covenant up at all if he already knew he was going to move past it one day and move to a new covenant, a better one, with better promises? Again, I ask, why would God have not made the better covenant the one Jesus brought first, and that's the only one? Why not jump straight to the stuff about Jesus and skip all the Old Testament things? God didn't make a mistake, so what's going on? I think the key to answering this is in verse 8, if you'll look with me here. Verse 8, it says, For he, that's God, finds fault with them. Them is Old Testament Israel. He found fault with them under that old covenant. There was a problem. The problem was Israel's faithfulness to it. The problem was Israel's obedience to keep the covenant. They failed. So he says God found fault with them, with Israel, under that old covenant system. They are the ones who made an agreement with God to obey him and be his people, and they broke it time and time and again. You read all the Old Testament, you'll see it. It's a big circle. They're on top, they're obedient, they're faithful, slip into a little bit of sin, slip into a lot of sin. God sends a prophet, stop that, you're dumb, quit doing this, or God will judge you. They don't listen. God sends a foreign army, captures them. A few years go by, they cry out, God, we're so sorry, we're a bunch of idiots, and then God lets them go back home. They're faithful, back on top, and it's a cycle over and over and over. They broke it. So he found fault with them, said that they're breaking this. It's not working. So they were limitations on that old covenant, not mistakes, limitations. The fault of the first one was it could not bring eternal salvation and righteousness to people. It could only show people the reality of their sin and how enslaved to sin and death they were. So let me say this another way. We need to get this, and I think it'll help us as we move on. Why did God do all that stuff in the Old Testament then if he was just trying to get to Jesus? The stuff in the Old Testament was meant to be a teacher. It was meant to pay the path to Christ. And what was it trying to teach? How wickedly depraved and sinful we really are. That's really all it was for. It was like a mirror for you to look in that mirror and see how really bad we look. It wasn't meant to pretty us up and make us feel good. It was meant to brutally stare you in the face and say, wow, I'm a wretch. That was the point of the Old Testament law. And in turn, people were to cry out to God, God, I, this law is too burdensome, I can't keep it, and God's grace would kick in. It was never meant to save them, it was meant to show them they need salvation in the first place. So the issue or the fault, he says, was not that God made a mistake with making that covenant. It was that the people couldn't stay faithful to it. So they fell into sin by their own choice, and God said, okay, I'll use that old covenant to get them to a point where I'll bring in the new through my son, Jesus Christ. But that still begs a question. If God knows all things in advance, if he knows the future, and the Bible says he does, he already knew that Israel would fail to keep that covenant. He already knew it before he ever said the word. So why did he do it anyways? Why go through all of that trouble, all of that pain? 
why not skip that again and go just straight to Jesus? I want to read you a few things that I think help here. Paul says in Galatians 3.19, he answers this, Why then the law? Meaning, why did God put the law in the Old Testament and do all that? It was added because of transgressions or because of sin. Because until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made, and it was put in place through angels by an intermediary. Now, I want to skip here, um, I think, verse 21 or 22. But the scriptures imprisoned everything under sin. That's what I was saying earlier. The scriptures of the Old Testament law. It imprisoned everyone under sin and showed them how much of a slave that they are to sin. And they need a savior. He says here, so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. So again, why did God do all that? To prepare people, their hearts and minds for their need for a savior. To show them how bad off they were. God was preparing Israel for the coming of their Messiah. God's plans that he had from all eternity was that he would go through that old covenant to prepare a path for people to be ready to receive the Savior when he gets here. But again, I still asked, why? I actually prayed about this, that there's got to be more to this. Why did God really do this? I read a lot of commentaries, and what I found interesting is they don't address this. They kind of just move on. And it, it really bothered me. So I dug in a little more. And here's again what I think could be going on. Galatians 4, 4 through 5 says this, But when the fullness of time, I want to draw your attention to that phrase, the fullness of time, when it had come, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law. That's Jesus Christ. Why did he do that? Verse 5, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. Why did God go through the law and enslave people to sin and show them that their need for a Savior? Because of Galatians 4. So when Christ came, people would readily see, or they should have seen, I need that Savior. Because without Him, I am hopelessly enslaved to sin, and I have no hope. It was meant to teach them and prepare them. 1 Timothy 2, 5-6, Paul says, For there is one God, there is one mediator, between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave Himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given, and here's the phrase, at the proper time. Christ died at the proper time, he says. What he is meaning is, out of all the epics of human history, out of all the years of human time that have existed and ever will exist, God sent Jesus at the proper time and in the proper way. Why? To save people in exactly the way he knew they needed to be saved. Everything was preparing people's hearts and minds for Jesus Christ to come the way that he did. Even Jesus said in Mark 1.14, Now after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Jesus here said, The time is fulfilled. That's why I'm here. Now is the time. The fullness of time is the key here. God knew when the time was right. He sent the law, that, that old covenant, to show people their great need for a Savior, to prepare them. The timing was perfect. I've read several things through history here. The Roman Empire was in charge during Jesus' day. I just want to say a few things that I think are pretty neat. It is said by historians that the timing when Jesus came was perfect to get the gospel out fast. Because in their day where Israel was, they were like a hub for commerce and transportation. There was major roads and intersections that went through Jerusalem and Israel. And it also just so happens that at that time in history, the Roman Empire used crucifixion as their form of capital punishment. 
Imagine, I'm not trying to be gruesome, but imagine if Jesus came in modern days and was killed under a modern society that used lethal injection and he was crucified, so to speak, under lethal injection. That would honestly do away with the strong imagery of him suffering and paying for sins by hanging on that cross and suffering. Because nowadays, modern societies, even if they exercise the death penalty, they try to make it painless and and quick and they use medicine. If he had come through that, it would have deadened the message. No, God sent him at this time in this place to show the world, here's my son, he's brutally beaten and dying for your sins, paying for them, cursed, so to speak, by hanging on a tree. And he rose again. People could share that message everywhere. So I say all that again just to say, why did God go through all that? Because his plan is perfect, and he knew that's what it took to get Jesus here at the right time, in the right way, to save people. I believe, I just believe this, this is hypothetical, we're here today because God's plan and timing was the way it was. If it had been 100 years later, 200 years later, I don't know where I'd be. I may have never heard the gospel. You may have never either. But because he did it that way, here we are. I want to be real quick. What are the promises here that Jesus offers his people? If you would look at verse 8 with me. For he finds fault with them and says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord. This is God talking. When I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. What's going on here is he quotes Jeremiah chapter 31, the prophet Jeremiah. God spoke this originally almost 600 years ago through the mouth of Jeremiah. And the context of that was Israel had fallen into sin. The Babylonians came in and captured them, punished them, disciplined them. And they cried out to God, God, we're sorry, we repent of our sins. And then God said this through Jeremiah. He said, you know what? The time is now coming when I'm doing away with the old covenant. I'm going to make a new. It's going to be better. It's going to be perfect. And it's going to save people for all eternity. So with that in mind, let's read what he said he would do. He said, I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. For they did not continue in my covenant, and I showed no concern for them, declares the Lord. So, here then, God says through Jesus, okay, he brings a new covenant, and here's some new promises with that covenant if you're one of his brothers and sisters through faith. You have these promises if you belong to Christ. They're better promises because Jesus brings them with a better hope. What are they, real quick? The first one is, he says, this new covenant, this new agreement, between God and people that would save them, it starts off with, he says, I'm going to make this covenant with Israel and Judah. Now, I share that with you for this reason. That means with God's people. God says, I will make a special agreement with my special people. Here, it's Israel and Judah. I'm jumping ahead, but Paul says in Romans, if you're a Christian who's never been a Jew in your life, you have no Jewish ancestry, still good news, you can take part in this covenant through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And Paul says you're grafted in to that covenant of Israel through your faith. So you can have these if you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. He says in verse 9, he's not rehashing the old covenant. He's not refurbishing the old covenant. This new covenant is going to be completely unlike anything that God did in the Old Testament before. Well, what's he going to do? In verse 10, this new covenant or this promise here, it's internally based. He says, for this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws into their minds. I will write it on their hearts. 
So the new covenant, when, when Jesus is your Lord and Savior, the promise he brings to you is this covenant. You can live it today. And what it does for you is it makes God's relationship with you be internally based, not externally. In the Old Testament, it was externally. They had to go to a priest, go to the scribe, go to a rabbi and learn from the Lord. And God says, no, 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 the new covenant, every one of my people will know me from the heart. My law, my word will be as if it's written on their heart, not stone tablets. The next thing it does, it makes the knowledge of God widespread everywhere. Verse 11, he says, They shall not teach each one his neighbor and each one his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me from the least to the greatest. So no longer there's this class system like Israel had of, if you're not a scribe or a priest, then you're not that smart and you can't know the law of God and you had to go to them to understand it. God says, none of that. Every person that is one of my children can know me from all their heart, all their mind. They can know all about me, know me personally. No more of this limited knowledge of God. The next thing about the new covenant, it's mercy-based. Verse 12, he says, For I will be merciful toward their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. The Old, the old Testament, the Old was legal-based, punishment-based, a little bit fear-based. If you don't act right, then this happens, that kind of thing. In the new, God says, I will so work in people's hearts that they'll love me from the heart. I will so forgive them to the extent it's as if I have forgotten that they were ever sinners at all to begin with. Forgive them for all eternity. No more offering daily sacrifices because one sacrifice is good for all eternity through Jesus Christ. Final thing I'll say is in verse 13. He says that first covenant is now obsolete, fully obsolete. In speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete. And what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish. The new covenant that Jesus brought in with his death and his resurrection gives you new promises if you are one of his children through faith in him. It gives you the promises that God loves you for all eternity. You're forgiven for all eternity if you've repented of your sins. For all eternity, just one sacrifice of Jesus. And God says, it's as if I have forgotten that you had those iniquities, it puts God's knowledge in your heart through the Holy Spirit. You can know God from the heart. You don't have to go to a pastor, a priest, or some scholar to say, I want to know God. You can know God yourself. Now, pastors and people, you know, we want to help, but the point he made here is, but you don't have to. You can know God from the heart through the Holy Spirit because of these new promises. But I want to end with just stressing this from verse 13. That old is obsolete now. God has passed it on and he's moved on to the new in Christ. Why does that matter? Simply to say this. Today, in 2023, based on what he said right here, there is no other way a person can come to know God except through faith in Jesus Christ and have the Holy Spirit in their heart. Not through trying to go back and follow the Old Testament. It won't get you anywhere. Not through whatever you want to fill in the blank. It won't get you anywhere. It'll break promises to you. You put your faith and trust in anything else out there for fulfillment, eventually it will break its promise to you. Even a person, it's going to happen. But Jesus says, I make promises to my people. They're saved for all eternity. Forgive them of their sins by just one sacrifice. I will know them through the heart. They'll know me and love me. And they have those promises that will never be broken. But only can that be found through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ? I pray you know him this morning. 
I'm going to pray and have Bruce and his team come up. If you do not know Jesus, do not leave here today. I almost want to beg you. You may say, I know him, but do you know him personally, from your heart, from your soul? Can you say before you leave, yes, I know I'm a child of God through my faith in Jesus Christ. And all this stuff about I'm forgiven and all of that, I know that I have that personally. If you don't, I'd love to talk with you about that. If you don't want to come up, I understand my cell phone number's in the bulletin. But I'm going to pray. I'll have Bruce and his people come. Lord Jesus, thank you that you are an amazing high priest. You are our Lord and Savior who saves people from their sins for all eternity. Thank you that we have a church to even come to and, and have a point to have a church service because we're here as redeemed people of God saved from our sins. Thank you for that gift and that sacrifice, Jesus. Lord, if there is no one here that knows you as their personal Savior, would they today? Would you work in their heart that they're so convicted? Lord, if there's believers here that maybe they're struggling in their faith or they've got a lot going on in life, would they know you're sitting down, you're not in chaos, you're sitting down calm, and you've given them all of these promises. In your son's name I pray, amen.